ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. When Dr Harry Freeman started his life as a psychiatrist, he worked in an asylum in Goulburn, where patients spent their days, sometimes their whole lives, sedated and restrained. Harry wanted to practice a different kind of psychiatry. Influenced by the anti-psychiatry movement of the 1960s, he ran existential groups with non-verbal patients and made his own personal explorations of LSD. In 1973, Harry volunteered as the doctor for the Aquarius Festival in Nimbin, Australia's own Woodstock. Harry ended up staying in the northern rivers of New South Wales and with like-minded spirits founded a commune called Paradise Valley, where his income as a psychiatrist helped to support the commune. But it wasn't all peace, love and happiness. Hi, Harry. Hi there, Sarah. As a young boy, Harry, you lived in a small country town called Harden in New South Wales, which I'm guessing was not at all like Nimbin. What did Harden look like through your eyes? Harden is halfway between Melbourne and Sydney, and it's the biggest hill between Melbourne and Sydney, so they had to hook an extra engine onto the Melbourne Express in Harden. That's how Harden came about. Could you hear the trains from where you Not lived? only could I hear the trains, everyone in the town could hear the trains, but of course when you hit, hitch two steam engines together, they're not going to be in unison. One's going to be going chut, 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 chut. The other one might be going chut, 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 chut. So it's mad day and night, <laughs> in particular at night, two competing steam engines is deeply embedded in my mind. What were your parents doing there? Well, Harden? they were both school teachers. And if you went as a young school teacher to the country, you could then choose pretty well where you were after that, where you could teach after that. So we spent seven years uh, in this little country town. Mr. and Mrs. Freeman, what's, what's the origin of your family surname? My illegal immigrant grandfather on my father's side, when asked what his name was, he said Freeman. Where was he yeah. coming from? He wouldn't tell anybody. He never told anybody. For all we know, he could have been a multiple murderer from somebody. He didn't say where the country was. He didn't say how old he was. Didn't say where he lived or anything about himself. Told nobody. Totally reinvented himself here. Mm. Your mum and dad, who were both teachers, where had they first met one another? So they met at school. And uh, so they were at Parramatta High School and he was sort of ducks of the state in Feb. You know, he was a really clever person. He always, the only thing I ever much heard from him was, you know, you're a terrible fool. To what you? I got, yeah, yeah, that's, that's what I got as the eldest. But he was a brilliant pianist. And, uh, you know, here he was in the country, an absolutely outstanding pianist. And there was nobody except the local bank manager who appreciated music and he was a bit lost. And he used to do these concerts. One of the concerts, one of the very rich men, squatters they were called then, invited him to come to his house and play for him, bought a grand piano for the occasion. (laughs) (laughs) And on the morning after we stayed, we stayed over the weekend, he took me out to pick up the lambs because it was lambing time and it was very cold. 
and he, we got into a Rolls Royce and he'd pulled the back seat out of the Rolls Royce so that he could collect the lambs. What, he was using it like a ute, the Yeah, Rolls he was, Royce. he was, but he said it was the only really reliable machine you had in, in the 50s. I'll never forget hopping in the back with the, the little lambs. Tell me a bit more about your mum who, after, you know, going to high school where she met your father, went on to university to train to be a teacher. What impact did that university study have on her attitude to religion? Well, she'd been a teacher. She'd been a, you know, Sunday school teacher, a Protestant Sunday school teacher, really until she got to high school. At high school, she met my dad, who was uh, Jewish, but who was not at all orthodox in any way and was def- very definitely an atheist. So I suppose it was uh, their connection meant that there was no connection whatsoever to God after she met him. And, you know, she was captivated by his musicality. And did she actually think of herself as a pagan, Harry? Or is yes. that how you think of her? No, quietly, as she took <laughs> the maypole to Western Sydney infant schools, <laughs> she quietly, on the quiet, she was only thinking of the pagan significance of the maypole, but she used to be, as a, she was a headmistress out in a huge school, but she used to travel to other schools and do the maypole. As stealth pagan. Absolutely. <laughs> stealth pagan instruction. Absolutely, yes. <laughs> Did she get you to dance that as well? Oh, getting me to dance brings back that, the most horrible memory because there was nobody to look after me. When I was three and four, I had to go to school and she was the kindergarten teacher, so I was literally in her class for several years. And when the inspector came one time, and I was a bit of a star, I could, you know, sing and dance and even fiddle on the piano, she, I was supposed to be the farmer in the dell. <laughs> well, I, I jacked up. Oh, no. Yeah. Your and moment front, came and you froze. In front of, in front of the, head, the, the, the inspector, my mother was deeply embarrassed at her. <laughs> Those, those early traumas stay with us, Absolutely, Harry. <laughs> yes, yes. You were a kid in, in the 1950s before the development of the polio vaccine. How big a threat was polio in your childhood? Well, it was absolutely huge because uh, two of the boys in my class got polio so badly <laughs> that they were, they literally spent between 12 and 18 months in an iron lung, each of them, a huge big thing where you jumped into and you were covered up to your neck, the possibility of a vacuum being created so that your lungs were expanded under these circumstances and then they, the lung breathed for you. And so they had to stay in that immobile for, yes, for, yes, for that yeah, period for Virtually of time. for 18 months. And we lived opposite the hospital and they were very, very noisy so the rumble of the those things was with me for 18 months. And when the electricity failed, as it often did in the 50s, of course, they had to be hand pumped. And I well remember still the doctor, you know, arriving in the middle of the night with his pyjamas sticking out of his trousers, uh, you know, to save the lives of the little boys and make sure that they survived well, with with the pumps on rather than the electricity moving. So he'd be manually... Well, he was organising things and making sure that that sort of stuff went on. So you can imagine that 
I'd already was going to be a doctor because, you know, two parents who are school teachers back in the 50s, the firstborn is going to be a doctor. So there's no doubt about what I'm going to do. But the, the sight of the doctor rounding the corner to the hospital on two wheels in his huge big Buick and uh, with his pyjamas sticking out from under his trousers, I, I mean, it was a very dramatic image. And so it just further stamped in the idea that I would be a doctor in the world one way or another. Never thought of ever being anything else. Yeah. Did yeah. those little boys survive, Harry? Yes, they did. They did. I think both of them still had some residual paralysis, but uh, no, there were two boys from my class and there they were. But they would have only been seven or eight. In, uh, yeah, were extraordinary. So the whole town was aware of this thing because of the sound of the Iron lungs. Parents must have been so terrified of their children oh. contracting it. I think all of the teachers must have been uh, quite worried because they all had little kids. They were all young teachers, little kids, and uh, there was polio in the town. Another thing that always strikes me when I talk to Australians who were kids during the 1950s is how strongly religion divided people back then, the sort of sectarianism of Australia in the 50s. How did that play out in your family with a non-religious mum and dad? So my mum and dad are, you know, school teachers and Bob Menzies is bringing in state aid for schools, for Catholic schools, hadn't been there before. They were outraged. They were absolutely outraged, as were all of the ordinary old Protestant school teachers in Australia, really, that Menzies could protect the Catholics in that way. And that was the one time that I, my dad, had, uh, my mum had caught me playing with the Catholics after school as she came home from school. And when my dad came home, she said, Jack, Jack, you, you'll have to do something. And I caught him playing with the Catholics <laughs> this afternoon. <laughs> and he had to sort of put me over his knee, which he'd never done before, and try to hit me. And it was just... Just ridiculous. It never happened again. And it'll... Did that change your mind about the Catholic kids <laughs> getting that not. smack? Certainly not. It was all very puzzling. <laughs> they seemed perfectly ordinary to me. <laughs> How interesting. Do you think your mum was was scared you'd be corrupted in some way or what was going on for well, her? Well, we would be just showing bad form, you know. We, the, you, you didn't, we weren't friends with the Catholics. <laughs> So as as you said earlier, Harry, it was always your intention and your parents' intention oh, yes. that you'd go on and, and study medicine at yeah. university. How did you afford to do that, though? Ah, uh, well, Menzies not only gave state aid, but he created what was called the Commonwealth Scholarship. So all of us uh, who, who were even vaguely literate were able to go to university. So the university was full of Westies and interesting sort of people, a very different... I mean, all there were a few people from uh, you know, the North Shore going to university. The doctor's kids, of course, were, were, were in medicine, but the rest of us were uh, from the western suburbs, really. And what kind of workload was it as a, as a student of medicine? How tough was that course? It's not a tough course. You, you could be adult... And part. Truly, yeah, Harry. You, no, you didn't have it. Now you've got to have a TER score, which none of us, uh, certainly I'd have never got into medicine uh, now. But no, it was like six A's in the, you know, in the final exams and you get into the university, no problem. But I had a friend with four B's who got. <laughs> so Commonwealth scholarships made that possible. But by the time I was at university, I was starting to play the piano 
and get enough gigs to move out of home uh, and that sort of thing. Where yeah, were you yeah. playing piano? Where were your gigs? Oh, God, I played at a, <laughs> at a wedding reception house out in Liverpool called the Del Monte and uh, uh, I did 263 weddings. Oh I know gosh. every speech that was ever made at a wedding and from upstairs you could look down and it was out in Liverpool so there were always fights uh, be- <laughs> between the family at some stage as everybody got drunk <laughs> and it was a very entertaining place. And the boss there was a monster an absolute giant, and I'm this tiny little thing. And one day I'd waited till halfway through the job because he, di- you know, he didn't give me enough money. Every week he underpaid me, and I went up to him halfway through the job and I said, "That's it. I'm I'm going. I'm not going to finish the job." And this great huge figure just bent over me and said, "You're not going to stand over me, you little asshole." <laughs> Sent you back to the piano. He did, really, but I was happy to go back because I think that we'd had an understanding then that he would start to pay me (laughs) properly. And and what were the common tunes? What were you playing usually in all those weddings? Yeah, you you ain't got a barrel of money, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, side by side. (laughs) All of those wonderful tunes. Mind you, Frankie was going then. So there were a few good tunes from Frank. Yeah, there, there, there were some good tunes to play. Well, when you weren't playing uh, at the wedding receptions, you were continuing your studies in medicine. And as you got on in your degree, you encountered a psychiatrist who was using LSD in, in group therapy. Yes. What was happening in those groups? Well, in, in the middle 60s, there were, LSD was legal. And at uh, one of the most famous and formidable sort of hospitals in Sydney called Broughton Hall, which was a part of the hospital that's now called Callan Park or Roselle. He was a Canadian psychiatrist, a psychoanalyst, and he decided to use LSD in huge group therapy sessions, 25, 30 people, and anybody who wanted to watch, provided they were vetted, we watched through a one-way screen And the people didn't know that they were being watched by, you know, half a dozen people, including some med students who smuggled their way in. What did you observe in those sessions? Well, it was amazing. (laughs) He used to give these people 100 micrograms of Sandoz LSD intravenously, uh, which was a decent dose. I mean, everybody's going to be tripping on that. And the next morning after the group went virtually all day and night on the Friday, he would give them... (laughs) five milligrams of dexamphetamine so that they wouldn't have a bad comeback after the trip and then they would go and catch the train home. What, these weren't even, these weren't residential Some of them were residential, but most of them were outpatients. You know, I saw many of these groups. I never saw anybody freak out. And what what sort of issues were people processing or discussing in this context? Well, this guy was a psychoanalyst, so, I mean, he was interested in the psychodynamics of all of the people. You know, there were nuns and priests and what? school why, teachers why and all there, sorts of people. Why were there nuns and priests well, doing uh, this? Because the Catholic, the Catholic hospital wouldn't have somebody doing LSD therapy in it, I can tell you. But uh, there was everybody, uh, for, uh, all sorts of people from the community. And this psychiatrist, who was really an extraordinary human being, used to just keep control of the whole thing. 
and uh, saw to it that nobody was uh, in in a bad way and all of that sort of stuff. So my attitude to mind-altering substances, even though I didn't get start using various mind-altering substances until I graduated, uh, but uh, I was just completely, well... I didn't think there was a real problem in mind-altering substances. So, you know, as soon as I got the opportunity, I was taking LSD and mescaline and those sorts of things and just seeing what it was like and smoking a bit of dope. And Were you ever worried, particularly as someone who was studying, you know, the brain and the body, were you worried about what it might do to you, what effect it might have on you mentally? No, because, uh, you know, well, I was reading Timothy Leary, of course, and Ram Dass and all of those sorts of people and all of the anti-psychiatrists. So there was a, a lot of literature to suggest that, uh, you know, having, uh, having your mind expanded uh, w- w- could be really good for you. I mean, the war on drugs hadn't started. That didn't start till Nixon in the 70s. So uh, everybody's attitude to the whole thing was very different, except my colleagues, well, the colleagues of his, the psychiatrists, who were an incredibly conservative bunch, and they ran him out of the country eventually. <laughs> And it did become illegal, of course, yeah. in, in Australia. Were you ever busted? I was, I think. Uh, probably in my first year in psychiatry training, we'd all gone down to the south coast and had some acid. And uh, the guy who gave us the acid didn't tell a couple of people what was in the Kool-Aid. And a girl became extremely distressed and uh, you know, walked into Nowra, I think it was, and uh, was very quickly uh, picked up by the police because she was incoherent, whereupon somebody who was with her then rang us and said, you're in big trouble. The drug squad is going to be here. It'll take them two hours to get here. Well, we're all so out of it. That wasn't going to make any difference to what we did. So I can remember that I I was sitting... (laughs) with uh, two speakers on each side of me listening to music very loudly when the police came in. Where is it? Where's the LSD? Where is it? Where is it? And it became obvious that they didn't know what LSD was. They didn't know what it looked like or anything like that. So we all just played dumb and the police left. Uh, Of course, they had it. There was nothing they could do. They didn't know how to find the LSD. But the next day at work, I got to work and I was immediately called to see the superintendent and I walked into the superintendent's room and there there was Detective Sergeant Abbott. I didn't know that at the time, but he was the boss of the drug squad in New South Wales. And he just looked at me and the superintendent looked at me and he said, Dr Freeman, are you aware of the fact that you are supposed to set an example? (laughs) So I thought, "Mm, yes. And that was that? (laughs) That was the end of it. Yes. In terms of the the training that you were undergoing to become a psychiatrist, Harry, you were sent out to a, a, to a country mental hospital to Goulburn. What was what was it like? What kind of place was it in the the seventies? Okay, so this was nineteen seventy, my first year in psychiatry after two years of just general medicine in emergency and that sort of stuff. On the first day, we were sent uh, to our various places. There were two thousand patients, nearly. What As kind of people were, were oh, in that Well, asylum? about a, a, a quarter of them were alcoholics because there was a thing called the Inebriates Act operating 
There were 10 psychiatric hospitals in New South Wales at the time, all of them on rivers. <laughs> that was an interesting thing. Gladesville and Parramatta, Rydalmere, but some in the country, Orange and Goulburn. 2,000 patients, very few doctors, and uh, I was given the four wards with geriatric patients. So it's the 50s, there's no nursing homes, no convalescent homes, those sorts of things then. So if the, if the family couldn't afford to look after somebody who was demented, they went into one of those beds. So when you think about it, there were a couple of thousand demented people in those beds, but just I had 200 of them. And what were your responsibilities as a doctor? What were well, you told you had to do? So I'm a young doctor. I'm, you know, I think I know something about anything and I'm full of anti-psychiatry, you know, in my first year of psychiatry. So I was up to see the nurse in charge of the four geriatric wards and he said, hey, doc, you know, because I'm this kid, you know, I must have been about 26 or something or other. Yeah, well, look, um, uh, you, uh, you don't call us. We'll call you. When, when you're needed, uh, basically that will be simply to sign the death certificates and to increase the medication. And he was really deadly serious. <laughs> and because they'd been running the place for 120 years, I was only allowed there to sign the death certificates and to increase the medicine. When you went to visit those wards full of dementia patients, what did you find? A few weeks later, I decided to make some spot checks in the <laughs> and um at five o'clock in the morning these people were r- released from the bed to which they had been manacled so that they couldn't get out and fall because of all of the medic- medication they were taking they were then marched through a communal shower Hot water, lovely hot water, but one side of the corridor was open to the weather. Now, I don't know if you know about Goulburn, but it's one of the coldest towns in Australia. So I saw 50 naked figures walking under the shower. It was like a picture out of Belson, uh, really. And then they were taken to the day room where they were put in chairs with arms so that a long sheet could be used to hold them into the chairs and um, they were fed their breakfast, a lot of them because they were under so much medication so that they wouldn't strain against the sheets needed to be fed. Uh, There was very little contact uh, with with anybody at all. They had their dinner at five and then they had their load of medicine so that they wouldn't move in bed and test the manacles. So that was their whole day, just was, being restrained and that was, that sedated. Was, that was the day of the, of the people in the geriatric ward. Was that shocking Well, you? the interesting thing is the life expectancy of them once they hit the place was still two years. So people can live for two years under those circumstances. And, uh, but at the same time, I'm a mad anti-Vietnam lefty, which my parents were. And so... That part of what was happening in the hospital, even though I'm already a bit of an anti-psychiatrist, I was much more interested in saving the world, you know, from the Americans than I was for doing anything about that. So, you know, a man's capacity for elective neglect (laughs) knows no bounds. This just wasn't in my world. 
You were trying to do some different sorts of things with some of your patients in the general wards. Tell me about a group of of mute patients that you were working with. Well, I did have also the the chronic schizophrenic ward male. And um, these were people, half of whom were incontinent and just squatted, uh, you know, in the courtyard. The courtyard had a ha-ha wall. In other words, there was a fence that looked from the outside that only looked to be about three feet tall, but actually it was about 15 feet tall. So this was a hideous sight, you know, with people just sitting and squatting and some of them spoke, but very little. And I decided to hold groups, you know, with these people. The nurses, of course, thought, well, I knew I was quite mad, you know, it was the stupidest thing. And I would be talking to these people and trying to encourage them to talk. And, uh, I mean, you won't believe this story. That So there's, there was obviously long silences uh, in these sessions. I only lasted about a half a dozen sessions, but there were long silences and suddenly a man who actually hadn't spoken for 14 years but came from a psychiatry family. <laughs> Both of his siblings were psychiatrists, for God's sake, and he was there in the chronic ward and terribly ill and hadn't spoken for 14 years. But he worked in the piggery because he was strong and all of that sort of stuff. Anyhow, out of the silence, he said, but they're very good to the pigs. <laughs> And the nurses and I look at this man who hadn't spoken for 14 years and was clearly right there in the room, which was very good for my sort of anti-psychiatry attitude at the time. And did that bring about a no transformation change. for him? No change whatsoever. He did. That's his Still, one expression, his that one was commentary. That he said, but they're very good to the pigs, and I nearly died sitting there with this man. Podcast. Broadcast. This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. This term anti-psychiatry a yeah. few times, Harry. Tell me about it. What did it mean back then? Well, what it meant was it had been started by a, a really famous and amazing uh, Scottish psychiatrist called R.D. Lang, Ronnie Lang. And he was a psychoanalyst and uh, very well trained and uh, working in a chronic mental hospital. And he decided by talking with the patients, which wasn't happening much, <laughs> At that time in the in the sixties, he had decided that actually, if you weren't paranoid during the Cold War, and it was the height of the Cold War, if you weren't paranoid, you were the one that was troubled. You're the one with a mind that's not working properly. So it's and like madness is a, a reasonable response an to a mad world. Response to a horrendous situation. And uh, that was what he based his whole idea on. And he began, you know, talking with patients and developing little places 
uh, where half a dozen people uh, with schizophrenia could be admitted and and would be talked with. Yeah. I guess, you know, as you were describing the, the treatment, those inmates who were receiving Goulburn sedation and, and really heavy-duty medication had been such a huge part of oh, yeah. psychiatric care, and this was a reaction partly against that. What kind of role did, say, antipsychotic medication have in that movement pioneered by Artie Lang? Well, of course, they were opposed to medication. That was the whole thing as far as they were concerned. The medication was stopping them from really being able to experience what might have been some sort of joy and uh, And what do you think peace. about that now? Well, I, I think, of course, that the doses of medication that are used are ridiculous and uh, that's improving as time goes by, but it's it's taking a long time, but they're not very effective. I mean, that, that's the whole point. Very few people with a serious dose of, of what people call schizophrenia or even bipolar disease, very few people survive to have anything like a, a normal and a pleasurable life. No. He was a controversial figure at the time, yeah. Artie Lang, and, and I guess there was a sort of a backlash against certain of those ideas. The the homes that he ran didn't continue after his death. Were there things that he missed, do you think? Were there things he got wrong in his approach to, to mental illness? Well, once again, it's amazing what you can put up with. You know, I was. I think I probably thought Joe Stalin was all right at the time. <laughs> so you know, have you reconsidered your views? On I him? have. I have, but it took me a long time. <laughs> and and with Ronnie Lang, you know, <laughs> until he died, I guess I was always a bit of a supporter. And uh, no, you know, one can hang on to these beliefs in the face of uh, all sorts of contradictions. How did your your superiors, as you were? wanting to finish your training as a psychiatrist, what did they make of your approach to to treatment? Well, I was sent down to a chronic ward from Broughton Hall for holding existential groups when I was working back in Sydney. That's how much they thought of it. More importantly, I was so sort of again the government, as it were, that I turned up for the final exams in psychiatry in a duffel jacket, hair down to my bloody waist, um, you know, just looking like somebody in off the street and all the rest of the gang are wearing suits. I really thought I could do that. You and know. that wasn't possible? Well, I got through to the final day of this exam very successfully. In a, you, once you get through to the final day, you're supposed to, you'll pass. It's all right. So I walked in, you know, dressed like this. So disrespectful when I think about it. And the first thing that a horrible psychiatrist called Richard Ball, can you have a name like Dick Ball if you're, <laughs> if you're a psychiatrist? And he said, ah, oh, Dr Freeman, yes. Well, what are the psychiatric presentations of the vitamin deficiencies? Start at A. So I thought, I, I see. <laughs> so they wanted to, I, to get you out then. Oh, absolutely. Just make sure that yeah, I recognised what a bloody fool I was. Next time I went to the exam, of course, I wore a suit and had a whiskey first and everything everything went fine. I suppose given your interests and your sensibility, it was inevitable that you'd gravitate to northern New South Wales at some point in the 1970s, Harry. Yes. What drew you up there when you went? What was happening? Well, just a bunch of my good friends who were still interested in politics and interested in the arts. Now, until 1973, 
every two years, there was an arts festival held in one of the universities and music and theatre and all of those sorts of things happened. These guys were, you know, acid-taking, interesting people, still interested in student politics and all of that sort of stuff, but out in the world, and they decided to offer to do the festival and this time life as art would be the theme of the festival. So we recycle, and recycling was just billing then, we decided to recycle a town. What what town was, well, was we gifted went, this? we went to Mullumbimby first and they said, you know, <laughs> F off. Um, <laughs> but uh, in Nimbin, the town of, there were only 300 people living in Nimbin at the time. The town was dying. Five little shops, two garages <laughs> and a post office. They just closed the butter factory, so the town was going to be wiped out and they were the Progress Association said, oh, yeah, come, you know. What did the locals make of you and your acid-taking mates when you arrived? Yeah, well, when we went there to check the town out, it must have been Christmas Eve before that, 72, me and Graham and uh, I think my sister, a couple of us went and drove up to have a look at Nimbin as it was, because it had already been decided to do it. And we went to the pub and we said, have you got a place to stay? And they said, oh, no, we don't do accommodation. Oh, uh, well, but what were all those rooms up the top there? No, 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 nobody's been in there for 30 years. Uh, Can we have a look? So we have a look and you go, and the beds had that dip in them, you know, obviously where they'd been slept in for years and they were pretty smelly, but there was nowhere else you could stay in Nimbin. So we put our stuff down, went down size and said, uh, can we have something to eat, you know? Oh, we don't do food. <laughs> <laughs> and we said, well, what, what are we going to do? And he said, well, well, uh, the, I'll get you, the wife to make you some sandwiches. And my mate said, yeah, so can we have some uh, can we have some wine? We don't do wine. <laughs> this is true. You're, you're pushing your luck asking for wine. That's <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that was really stupid. <laughs> we so we don't do wine. So that was Nimbin in Christmas 70. I mean, five years later, there wasn't anything in the world that you couldn't get from the pub. <laughs> and once this, this festival, this Aquarius festival took off there in 5,000 naked hippies wandering around this town, yes, <laughs> um, a lot stayed. It sounds like it was a lot of fun. Did it feel like a revolution as well? Did you think oh, it okay? did. We were all pretty high at that time. I mean, you know, we really thought this was this was the beginning, you know, of uh, the revolution. The dominant paradigm had to be resisted. So it was the resistance to the dominant paradigm. So nothing that was happening in the dominant paradigm was to be taken up. What did you imagine the future might be like? Well, sustainable living not wasting anything, you know, saving stuff, living together, you know, a half a dozen families living together, one washing machine, one kitchen. That was the model, you know, to resist the dominant paradigm in every way that you possibly could. Try to grow food, try to do all of those sorts of things. What did Mr and Mrs Freeman back in Parramatta make of this turn in your career? Well, I think that uh, most, most families of people who joined multiple occupancies. And we we created the movement. We and another half a dozen communities created uh, the whole idea of multiple occupancies. I think all the families really felt 
uh, uh, you know, rejected. Because we were making, we had these fantasies of looking after each other through to our old age, all of that sort of stuff. This was the new family. It was an extended family. The nuclear family was deemed to be part of the dominant paradigm, so you should do something else. But of the half a dozen couples who bought the land, I mean, there was just one wash house, one kitchen and so on, so on, so on, so So with these other couples, you created Paradise Valley, yes. a place called Paradise Valley. What yes. did it look like? Half of it had been a dairy farm, as dairy was the was what was happening up in the, that whole of the north coast. So there were these bare, bare paddocks, and then there was the, the rainforest towards the back of the property. We got 200 acres with electricity and a little shed for $9,000. You're hurting me, Harry. You're time. hurting me. No, it's mad, I know, but it's true. <laughs> and so we we put in our, you know, $1,500 each and we suddenly owned a farm. But it was, it was a bear farm and it only had cattle. Where did you live? What was your house like? Well, we had houses built or built, built houses. So, you know, the men up there at the time were expected to sort of do that part of the thing. So there was a big, even though it was the second wave of feminism, very strongly, the women's roles and the men's roles were fairly defined, but all the women learned how to build and do, do that sort of stuff, and the men were left, particularly during the women's groups, <laughs> to look after the kids. But that part of it was never properly sorted, although the women's groups were very strong, very powerful with that second wave of feminism. and But we didn't have a men's group or anything like that. You appeared. had the patriarchy, Harry. You didn't well, need a men's group. Exactly. That's how, <laughs> I'm sure that's how we felt. Anyhow, a notice went up on the notice board one day down in town, men's group at so-and-so and so-and-so. So 40 men turn up to this men's group and we've heard all about the wonders of the women's group and we start having groups and we once a week we met for groups and finally we found out it was one of the women who'd put up the sign. <laughs> she had them, to organise it. <laughs> she, but she never admitted that it was her that put it up and none of us even thought that it would, would be anybody but one of us who would have put the sign up. Were you still working as a as a psychiatrist? Yeah, but I, I I was working three days, three days. I always worked three long days rather than the full five days. In in at Lismore or where were you? Based? Yeah, no, at Lismore. Well, Lismore psych unit, which was set up by my my mate, and we then ran the place for years and years and years. That was the only psychiatric unit between Newcastle and Southport. The only psych unit. So we had thirty beds of the usual sort of psych unit. Mind you, psych units in public hospitals were new in the 70s. They only started in the 60s. And that income that you were making on on those days that you were working as a psychiatrist, did that go to the collective? Most of that. Most of that went into the collective to the point of when I then left at 40 because I fell in love with somebody, uh, we all fell in love. All the marriages failed. All falling in love with somebody from not on the commune. Because it was so easy to separate because then the kids didn't have to necessarily separate and, and that sort of stuff. And we'd formed our own school. So it was easy to separate. We all separated, all fell in love with people who were off the farm, none of whom wanted to live on communes. Paradise Valley was not their 
paradise. No, not really. Not as couples. And you were saying, though, that financially when you left... Yeah, financially I had no money at all. I mean, that was just because I wasn't thinking about money, you know, and I was just being part of it. Other, there were a few other people working too, but mostly sort of odd job things. I went to the bank manager and I said, I want to buy a house. Oh, yes, Dr. Freeman, you know, yes, of course, of course, you know, you're consultant doctor here, yeah, yeah, yeah. You just need the uh, deposit. And I said, I haven't got a deposit. And he looked at me and he said, Dr. Freeman, are you a gambler? And I said, you could say that. <laughs> In a manner of speaking, <laughs> I have been. Yeah. You mentioned that it, you developed your own school, the commune developed yeah. its own school. What kind of place was it to raise kids, do you think? What do your kids make of it? Well, of course, my son feels that it was an exercise in downward social mobility. He's pissed off. He didn't get to be a rich doctor's son. I was not a rich doctor and he was one of 11 kids and 14 adults sort of thing. He wasn't specialed by us. And what sort of education? I mean, that the free-range education yeah, would have well, its... Yeah, I mean, he couldn't read when he was 10. <laughs> um, he, he was probably the only kid who couldn't write, but that was just his nature. He, he just didn't get into that sort of stuff. So when he went to a real school at high school, he had to really knuckle down. Does it still exist, Harry? Do people still live there? Oh, yeah, on the valley, but uh, there's virtually none of the actual originals are there. So there's still... 20-odd people, 25 people who live there in various dwellings, but the only thing they share is the roads. (laughs) Those intentional communities or or communes that sprung up in the the 70s in Australia, some of them have kept going. What do you think the secret is of those that have Uh, continued to flourish? Very simple. They were places with a really spiritual side to them. The leadership were people who were prominently involved in in spiritual quest. So there was a different motivation Complete, or a different sort of ethic. Diff- completely different. So they're the ones that have uh, definitely survived with even some originals still living there, although there's a wonderful Bodhi Farm original woman that I much admire and uh, she was working in, in uh, Lismore for many years who... Uh, I asked her a couple of years ago when we were just talking business over the phone, what do you reckon's the legacy of Bodie Farm? And she just said, as quick as a flash, cheap housing, <laughs> which is true, which is certainly true. That's probably the, the most important legacy of all of the multiple occupancies and that sort of thing is housing that's cheaper. Yeah, yeah. You continued your your work as a psychiatrist once you'd left the commune and and moved into Lismore itself. And I mean, I think it's as as a layperson, Harry, most fields of medicine seem to have kind of common agreement about developments in terms of treatment and best practice. It doesn't seem that way in psychiatry. There still seems to be so much tension around what's the best treatment? Is it medication? If so, how much medication? What even counts as a mental illness? I mean, how do you see the the, the tensions or the conflicts within your discipline of, of medicine at this stage of your career? Um, at this stage of my career, I'm two weeks from unregistering. So I'm about to stop being a psychiatrist and I'm to stop being a doctor in the world. <laughs> I have discovered that the true meaning of emeritus 
it developed in about the 1600s, has done enough. <laughs> that's the proper meaning is of that the how term. It, and is that how it feels and to you? And that's exactly how I feel. But your critique of psychiatry as being something that is, uh, seems to be mixed up and there's nothing constant and, uh, uh, about even the theories of it. You're completely right. And you're right because we have foolishly, as a profession, we've allowed the concept of mental health. The, the idea that it's like, that mind is like body. Body can be healthy, therefore mind can be healthy. This is absolute nonsense and it's so, so diminishes mind. We have mental life. That's what we have. We all have mental life. There's things like nobility, curiosity, all of those sorts of things that are part of mental life. They're not a part of psychiatry. So you mean it's much broader than health or disease? There's oh, much, much more richness ab- in our absolutely. consciousness than that model absolutely. allows. And and the idea that you can say what is mentally healthy, you've only got to look around the world and see the differences between all of the, you know, the Maasai men who are as strong as oxes and healthy as horses and they drink blood. That's That's their diet, you know. So heavens above, <laughs> to suggest that there's some way of being in the world that might be described as mental health. Through your, you know, your many hours spent with patients who were sometimes struggling with really terrible suffering, what have you found to be the most important thing from you as a doctor in helping relieve that? Oh, I, I've always been kind. I am a kind sort of person. I think that's an incredibly important uh, therapeutic ingredient. And the other one, of course, is non-judgmental. You, you, can, you can't imagining that you can help somebody that you're judging. Now, of course, as humans, one of the things that we manage to neglect very effectively is judgment. We, we we all sort of think that we're not and try not to be judgmental. It's just nonsense. We can't help it, you know. The things that I grew up with are very difficult to discard. And so kindness and, and a lack of judgment are, are critical. It's interesting. Those two, they're, they're qualities of, of you and your presence rather than something you're giving or, or telling the oh, patient. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. But I've also felt that, uh, you know, psychiatry that medicalised and uh, insisted on bodily-fying psychiatry was, was missing the point. I mean, something that was worth knowing, but given the effectiveness of the drugs that we use, it's clearly way away from anything that's really helpful. I mean, I often think if people decided to find out if, if I was a good psychiatrist and they decided to go back and see all the patients that I saw 10 years ago as new patients just the once and said, what did you think of that Freeman guy? If they, and if they said, oh, Christ, definitely madder than me, for God's sake, and, you know, I've never been to see anybody since then, well, that would be a bloody good outcome. You know, let's face it, it wouldn't be counted as a, as a good outcome, but it would be a good outcome. Do you feel like you've helped people? I hope so. And there's certainly a few people that I've undoubtedly been been helpful for. Some people, I see one person that I, 
I actually saw at the festival and that I'd seen two years before that in my first year in psychiatry. In my first day in psychiatry when I thought I knew something about it and he was brought in out of the Air Force and was quite mad. He'd been using a lot of uh, speed and stuff. And I interview him, as you see, and I don't believe in madness. And, uh, and, and I said to the nurses after I'd done my interview, oh, he wants to go outside, would you let him, let him go out into the beautiful, we're on a farm, you know? And the nurses all looked at me as if I was completely insane, which was pretty close to it. And so they said, oh, well, all right then. And, of course, he walked straight out and climbed up the nearest tree to the very top of the tree, and the nurses with big smiles on their faces walked into this young bloke who thinks he knows something. Well, doctor. And said, well, doctor, <laughs> what are you going to do? <laughs> so anyhow, Jimmy had a neologism, one of his own words. What he felt was influencing him was instritic. And he started carrying on about instritic. Anyhow, I said to him after a few minutes, you know, you've got to come down. Jimmy. So he's said, at no, the top of the tree he's at the top and of you're tree. having I'm this conversation. Yeah. Come down, Jim. No, 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 no. And then he started talking about the instritic, which he was taking in. And I said to him, Jim, I've got a really good brand of instritic, really good brand of instritic. You come down here and I'll hook you up to the instritic machine. And I hooked him up to a shock treatment machine and cured him really in two or three shocks every couple of days. I still see him. So now it's 53 years. I've been seeing him. And how's he doing now? He's not well, but he lives alone with dignity and grace and keeps himself physically fit and he's 73 now. You're using those terms mad and insane, you know, to describe yourself and to describe the people you see. A lot of people would shy away from those sort of words, Harry. Why why do you find them helpful? What do you find appropriate about them? Well... (laughs) They're better than words like psychosis. Why? <laughs> because it's completely undescribable. Delusions, hallucinations, these terms that are used in psychiatry were implying some sort of precision in the description of mental life. And it's nonsense, absolute nonsense. And it's dangerous nonsense to think that we have anything like precision in this thing that we call psychiatry. So in two weeks, you stop being Dr. Harry Freeman. How does that feel? I'll be Dr. Emeritus Harry Freeman. (laughs) Well, it's a bit frightening, but mainly I'm just becoming more and more aware of the awful nature of being a doctor. Beyond belief, beyond belief, the responsibility that we take and are given as doctors in the world, unless you're it, you can't possibly understand it. What's it like, (laughs) that responsibility? I mean, how have you experienced it for the 50 or so years you've been responsible for other people's lives? What's it it like? Well, I had a wonderful uh, (laughs) mentor in my first three years when I was working in Sydney, a a blind psychoanalyst, gorgeous old man. When I said I'm going up north, he said, ah, Harry, you want to be a big fish in a little pond. (laughs) (laughs) He got you. (laughs) Just like that. 
but the first time he got me was about a year before that when I'd been in it for a couple of years. And I, I go in there once a week. He's got a bloody seeing eye dog that farts all the time <laughs> in a tiny little room with no windows. And I'm seeing him once a week. That must have coloured my... <laughs> but anyhow, we're in this smelly room one time and I'm saying, look, I'm falling to pieces. This is absolutely ridiculous. And he said, oh, wonderful, Harry. Yes, you feel like an imposter. Very good. Very good. You're making progress. So I've, I've, I've just always had those words and I felt if I never felt like that, if I didn't have great doubt about how I was unfolding and what, then this would be a serious problem. So I've remained, you know, I've been on the edge in my attitudes to psychiatry. It's been fascinating to meet you and hear about your life. Thank you so much for being my guest on Conversations. Oh, Sarah, thank you so much for having me along. Dr Harry Freeman was my guest today. I'm Sarah Konoski. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Konoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Hey, Miyuki Akiranta here from the Earshot Podcast. In our latest season, we're telling stories about remembering. And there's an intriguing episode about Sunil Badami's uncle, who was India's best-known sceptic. I've seen the sceptic eat fire, pull jeeps with hooks in his back, levitate in the air, stand on his head, buried in sand. But at the heart of the sceptic's magic was a disappearing act. I can only imagine how she slipped away in the night, giving her sleeping children a last tender kiss before taking the overnight express to Madras with her lover. When Sunil pulls back the curtain of his family secrets, he uncovers a mystery whose unspeakable shadow has loomed over three generations. But he also discovers more questions. What does it mean if the greatest trick is the one our memories play on us? That's the latest episode of Earshot. Just look for us on the ABC Listen app.